Um, I mentioned last week that everything that Jesus did in the last week of his life is just chock full of significance. Um, there was no non-purposeful action that took place. Um, and so this morning I want us to turn again to sort of this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and to look afresh at what that means for us today. What it meant for them and what it means for us today. And again, today's scripture and the story it tells focuses on the importance of worship in the life of God's people. So go ahead and just read through Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. At your tables, just read it. You can get it out of the sermon notes. You can get it in all kinds of locations. Henry observed that this is the only act of regal authority and coercive power that Christ did in the days of his flesh. This is the only time he just took charge in this way. Um, he had always dealt, even as a king, by the claims and by persuasion. But in this action, he cleansed the temple himself. He didn't ask them to take down the tables to clean themselves up. And it's a picture of what he will do when he comes a second time. It's, he's going to cleanse his church. Um, he's going to cleanse this universe. And there's a couple of things that I think we can observe here or things that we may be able to learn or are relevant to us as we look at these. The first one you'll see in verse 12 and 13 and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, this is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And again, we've learned something important here that we've talked about before. And it's just true over and over Jesus comes to cleanse. And who, where he starts is with his people. So he's coming in and he's cleansing the temple. Um, and symbolically, that, what that is, he's cleansing, he came to cleanse us. That not only is he cleansing the temple, but who is the temple now? Where is the temple of God now? In us. So he's there. He, this is symbolic of saying, I'm going to come in and cleanse the temple. Um, ultimately, he means he's going to cleanse his people. And he begins with us. And that's where judgment always begins. It always begins with the church. It always begins with his believers. 
And so just sort of hold that thought because that's going to be seen throughout these verses. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. It's Monday morning. He arrives at the temple, and what he sees there just angers him. The temple is filled with the commotion of business. Um, there are money changers doing their work. There's people selling sacrifices. Now, again, understand how this took place. This wasn't just one day. This just happened. It was a progression. And I think that's the same thing that's true in our life. There's a time when our worship may be very pure, but over time, we just let things get in the way of it. Um, that, so in the same situation, you got that. Because to go to the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice. And so let's say you were coming from home, and you're traveling, and you have a sacrifice that you're bringing, but when you get to the temple, you find out that the priest said, now this, this, this sacrifice is unclean. Or even on the way to Jerusalem, something happens to the animal, and now it's unclean. So some enterprising individual decide, well, we'll set up sacrificial animals that have already been cleansed or have already been approved by the priest, and we'll just have them here, and we'll sell them at a little bit of a profit, and they'll be able to have an animal there, and so everybody wins. And so that sounded okay, but then it went further because in order to use, to buy anything there, you had to use money, the currency, from there. You couldn't bring it from a different region. And so you've got your money, you come there to buy an animal, but you can't buy an animal because there's no ATM. And they don't take your money. So some guy said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll exchange money. And so I'll be there, and people can give me money, and I will exchange it for them, but I will make a little bit of a profit too. And so everybody wins. But now you have all this taking place inside of the temple. And what may even started out as a good idea has now robbed people or robbed the temple of what its purpose was, was to be a place of communion, of prayer, where the God's people came together with a sense of worship. So when Jesus walks in and he sees all this, he's not happy. He's not happy at all. And he says that this house of prayer that was intended for the spiritual worship of my father has become a robber's den, a marketplace. And he uses two Old Testament scriptures there. First, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He quotes, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all of the nations. And then also in Jeremiah 7, 11, where the words robber's den is introduced using these verses to say, this is what has happened to my temple. This is what has happened to our being able to worship God. So Jesus condemns the activity, and he proceeds to overturn the tables and the money changers and the booths and of those who are selling the sacrificial animals. And what is going on is that corporate worship is being profaned. That which is to be the highest example of God's people, communion with him, prayer time with him, solemn and joyful worship has degenerated into a bazaar. Um, there's a den of activity, just like in a marketplace. 
and there's no seriousness about the desire to worship God. And you see, when Christ comes into the temple, he has to clean it. There can be no other gods. When Christ comes into the temple, it is to be a place of prayer, of communion with God the Father. Now that's exactly what he wants to do with each of us. Because that alone is the primary priority and purpose. The pursuit of righteousness and holiness with God. And the pursuit of personal gain and the misuse of things God will overturn to cleanse the temple. And again, the temple he's talking about is us. Myself. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody but myself. I'll say, I really didn't enjoy the worship. Well, who should I be pointing my finger at when I make that statement? Myself. Because the only barrier to worship is me. There's nothing out there that should be a barrier to my ability to commune with God in prayer. There should be nothing out there that prevents me from just being able to pray and to worship God in freedom, in truth, and in spirit. But when I walk into an environment and let the music or the people or anything else interfere, I'm looking at all the externals. And it's so easy to look at the externals because if I'm looking at the externals, I don't have to look at me. And I don't have to say, you know, this is a barrier in my life that's preventing me from worshiping. Instead, I can say, I didn't like the music. There's a barrier in my life that prevents me from worshiping, and I didn't like the way they read the scripture. Or I didn't like this or that. I didn't like round tables. I don't like, you know, whatever it may be. Now I'd go to a church and say, I don't like pews. I mean, it's, I don't know if I can go to church without a round table. Um, <laughs> but that's me. That's nothing to do with anything else that's going on out there. It's my heart. So when Christ comes into my temple, into my life, he comes to cleanse. He comes, comes to cleanse me of my sin. He come, comes to cleanse me of my personal ambitions, my passions, and the small gods that take me away from God my Father. He comes to cleanse me of those things. He comes to cleanse and drive out anything that would rob me of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To rob me of anything that was going to help me grow into his likeness. We talk about that River Valley exists to see people transformed into Christ-like disciples through the transformation of the Holy Spirit and his word. Now, what's inside of me that's preventing that transformation from taking place? That's what God wants to cleanse. Um, so when Christ does that, remember what the purpose of cleansing is. The purpose of cleansing is to bring healing. It's to bring restoration. When you cleanse a wound, you're doing it for the purpose of getting rid of any infection, getting rid of anything that, prevent the, that would prevent the wound from being healed. And so that's what Jesus does for us. He says, I'm going to heal 
the wounds of sin. I'm going to heal the wounds of broken relationships. I'm going to heal the wounds of unhealthy actions and behaviors and instead restore you to a right relationship. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to cleanse. It just doesn't happen without there being some kind of cleanse. So God's reforming and refining and sifting work begins with the people of God and with the way we worship. Now let's see a second thing here. Because Jesus has just cast all of them out and the blind and the lame come to him in the temple and he healed them. This is an amazing picture in my mind. Jesus is not happy with what he's seeing with the people who are not, who are not worshiping him. So he chases them out of the temple. And in the midst of all of that, he sees some lame and blind people and he goes, okay, let's heal them. Now, I don't know how, how well you do in shifting emotions or how well you can show compassion in the midst of being on a separate agenda. You know, if, if, if I'm upset with somebody and I see another person who's hurting, my first response is, oh, let's take care of the hurting person. You know, if I'm upset when I'm driving down the highway and I'm upset with her and I see somebody off on the side of the road and they're struggling, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to move. If I'm feeling good, okay, we'll pull over and stop and see if we can help you. Jesus, in the midst of his agenda of cleansing the temple, immediately is able to see the hurting and to heal the lame and the blind. Now again, as you read Matthew 21, and you continue to read afterwards, you're going to see Jesus ministering to prostitutes, to the blind and the lame, those who are handicapped. We are going to find him ministering to those who are the least significant in the eyes of others, the ones who have been most, the most marginal, the most unimportant to the, in the eyes of at least the scribes and the Pharisees, um, the chief priests, and so that's who Jesus is going to minister to. And then you're going to hear him, Jesus say, and this is who my kingdom is. These are the people of my kingdom. Um, somebody defined River Valley as a classless church. And I thought, what a great definition. And what they meant by it is that it didn't matter what socio-economic, culture, race you were a part of. They felt loved at River Valley. It was classless. You know, and I, I just thought, what a tagline. A classless church ministering to classless people. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. At least that would get some people, what in the world? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? Um, but that's what Jesus was doing. It didn't matter who they were. It was anybody who said, help me. I have a need. And again, traditionally the blind and the lame 
didn't even take part in the sacrificial worship of the temple. They were not even allowed into the inner court of the temple to, part, to participate in the sacrificial system. But here in the wake of Jesus coming, they are coming to be healed. Um, so they hear of him, and they're coming, and, they're, and, he, and he's in the midst. On one hand, he's doing this, and the other hand, he's healing. Um, and again, I think from this, we learn something about the importance of acts of compassion, acts of mercy, that we're able to do that, and that compassion goes towards all people. Um, it can go towards the people who seem, who feel they're unimportant or marginalized, but that our compassion still needs to reach out to them. Because over and over and over again in Matthew and in the other Gospels, he has com 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 proclaimed this truth of who he is, of his love, of his salvation through different acts of healing, of compassion. And he's taken people who've considered outcasts and embraced them and said, I love you. I said, I love you. He ministers to them. And our ministry is to reflect Christ's ministry in a world and in both word and in deed. So there's a tremendous need for acts of compassion. There are people all around us who have broken world experiences who just need people to reach out to them and say, I care. Who they're in desperate need of being ministered to. To just random acts of kindness and acts of compassion. And they don't have to be announced. Um, and I get amazed and surprised, and I guess I shouldn't be, of sometimes when I hear those things. Um, when I heard one story where when when Doug's dad was in the hospital, uh, somebody came over to visit, but not only to come over and visit, but to bring a meal to everybody in the family that was there at the hospital. Unannounced, just an act of compassion. That there's you know, another person who just wrote letters to Ryan every, every week while he was in, while he was in prison. Um, that different people just show act of compassion. And we can go through story after story and story of people who showing that love and compassion to our family, to the people who are here. So even though we may not socialize with one another, there's no reason why we can't show that same love to everybody who's in our family. In fact, God tells us to. Um, and that means seeing each other as family um, and to show that kind of love. Again, Matthew alone reports that Jesus miraculously healed the blind and the lame that came to him in the temple. Is that our attitude? Are we on the lookout for opportunities to show compassion to one another? When we hear of somebody going, going through a struggle, does it, does it move us to prayer? Does it move us to, to contact them? Does it move us to just show that compassion? And then beyond that, are we on the lookout to see how we can minister to the broader community?
and display Christ's compassion to everybody that's, that we come into contact with. Um, I was sharing something of this nature. Um, who's got their Bible open? Or somebody can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's 5 through 7. It's too long for me to get it on my phone. No, it's four. Thirteen, uh, verse four. Would somebody read that out loud? Four through... Yeah, four through seven. That's uh, through seven. Where in those verses did you hear the word like? not there love is not an emotion the love here is a verb and it's a verb that says love others as I have loved you so it doesn't always mean that we have to like the person we love we're loving but we still show them the love that Christ has commanded us to show and sometimes we feel and that's the problem we feel that we have to feel in order to love. And the reality is we don't have to feel. We have to say, this is how Christ loved me. This is my responsibility to love others as Christ loved me. And so it's not that we're going to walk around and say, oh, we just like everybody. We love everybody. And we make it an emotion that says, you know, there are just sometimes people I really don't like, but I'm commanded to love them. I'm commanded to love them. And so even, you know, with my kids were growing up, I knew that they weren't always going to like each other. And I didn't expect them to like each other, but I did expect them to love each other. And the love meant, I'm going to respect you. I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be generous. Now, we didn't always win on that one either. But at least it had nothing to do with emotion. It had to do with obedience to the love of Christ. And that's what God tells us to do in the family and then in the outer community. Um, then we see in verses 15 through 17 a third thing. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city 
to Bethany and lodge there. I find one thing that I find interesting there. He responds to them and then just leaves. <laughs> you know, okay, we're not going to get a debate on this one. Haven't you heard? Well, yeah, okay, see you, bye. <laughs> I'm leaving now. Uh, I just find that so interesting. But in this passage, we see Jesus being worshipped by outcasts and children. While those who are supposedly pious, those who are supposedly the mature, those who are supposedly the religious, are indignant. And we learn one last thing from this passage. We learn that the poor in spirit see God. Um, the poor in spirit see God. Now, I know some of you biblical scholars are going to go, that's not the correct interpretation of that beatitude. Um, because I know that the, the beatitude says the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. Um, theirs is the kingdom, it says. I know that the attitudes say that those who hunger and thirst after God or after righteousness see God. But it's also true that the poor in spirit see God. Those who have humbled themselves see God. And we see it in living color in these verses. Jesus, after casting out all those who were demeaning the worship of God, after healing the blind and the lame, after receiving the praise of the children, Jesus is severely criticized by the religious leaders. They are outraged. Their response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is, what are you doing? Don't, they're mad. And they're saying, don't you realize what these children are doing? Yeah, they're praising me. And it comes right out of Psalm 8. The children will be praising me, which means... He's claiming to be God because they're pra praising him for that. And so they're asking him a question designed to shame him, to, to keep him or to tell him to keep the children quiet. And isn't it amazing how these people who could care less about the temple being denigrated by uh, thieves and money changers are concerned now about the holiness of the temple because they don't want children praising God. And again, Jesus says to him, haven't you ever read Psalm 18? Uh, and by quoting Psalm 18, he does three things at once. First of all, he indicates the biblical basis for the children's praise. He goes right back to the Psalms. He says, what you are seeing here is the fulfillment of what God has already done in the Psalms. Secondly, he testifies to his own deity um, because praise is directed toward God and Jesus knows that. So as the children cry out, Hosanna, the son of David, Jesus is saying, by the way, I am the son of the living God. And finally, he has indicated once again that it is the humble. It is only those who are willing to acknowledge their need who perceive spiritual truth and the reality and then worship God. And in this case, it's the children. So Jesus makes it clear that the praises sounded by the children were, in, in, in essence, a rebuke to the nature of the religious superiors. Now, how do we know if we're humble before the Lord? Martin Lloyd-Joy answers 
Jones answers that question with these words. Do I know God? Is Jesus real to me? That's the question. I'm not asking whether you know about things, uh, the things about him, but do you know God? And are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life? The soul of your being? The source of your greatest joy? He's meant to be. He made man in such a way that he was to have that position. That man might dwell in communion with God and enjoy God and walk with God. And that's how we are supposed to be. You and I are meant to live like that. Enjoying God in every area of our life. And to be able to have that kind of communion with God. We are meant to live that way. And when we don't, that is the basis of sin. It's the, the lack of desire or want to conform to God's standard or to his image. And so I will hear people say, I don't commit any bad sins. And I go, that's great. What's your relationship with God? What do you mean? Do you enjoy him? What do you mean? Do you have communion with him? Do you enjoy praying with him? Do you enjoy everything about him? Well, no. Well, that's the essence of sin. The behavior is just a result. And so we judge our behavior, we would judge sin by our behavior, but not by the heart that Jesus has said, that's the temple that I want to clean. And if that's not coming to me first and foremost, if there isn't sweet communion in my heart, if there isn't a joy in your heart, that's what he wants to cleanse from our lives in order that we can have that kind of sweet communion with Jesus in order that we can have that joy and that's what comes from us. Got to, I know I'm not supposed to share anything that takes place at M3. But one of the, I'm not going to share what was said, but one of the questions that we talked about, what is joy? What does it really look like? And um, just great conversation about with a group of men who are just being able to honestly talk about some of these things that are going on in our lives. Um, and just in preparing this message, that those thoughts kept on coming to mind. You know, is God the center of my life? That's what I hunger for. Or do I still hunger for all these smaller gods that prevent me from worshiping him in truth and in joy and in spirit? There's nothing worse than allowing all these small gods to interfere with the one true God. Um, and that takes humility. Humbling ourselves before God, trusting in him alone, and bringing nothing to him in our hands, simply clinging to his 
and saying, you are what I need. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for the time that we have together to worship you, to grow in our understanding of what that looks like, what that means. And Lord, I ask that you cleanse each of our hearts, cleanse your temple. Because when you come back, you're going to want a holy people, a cleansed people, a people who worship you in spirit and in truth, who in regards of everything else that is going on in their life, the thing they desire most is a right relationship with you. Because if there's a right relationship with you, there's at least a chance of right relationships with others. But without a right relationship with you, there is no chance. And so, Father, I ask that you continue to minister to each and every one of us, that we can go forth to minister one to another, is my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said,